Greetings, denizens of Dark Hollywood Drives. Thanks for listening to this episode of Shadows and Pinstripes. I don't have a um, cute name for it, but uh, today's episode we're going to be talking about Nicholas Ray's In a Lonely Place. So, Eddie Muller has, um, I've mentioned in previous episodes, that he has um, a list that he put out of his top 25 film noirs. And he sort of, in the list, discounts the idea of making lists. But in order to appease the, the listophobes, I don't know if that's a word, but for the ones who want lists and people who like to list things, he says uh, he figured it was about time to make a list. And, um, and I, I've referenced that list a few times. There's a lot of good stuff on that list. Um, if you're just looking for something, maybe uh, something you haven't seen before, and you're trying to find a list, uh, you're trying to find some something to watch, um, just Google Eddie Muller Top 25, and you can read that list. And uh, it's just it's it's got everything on that on that on that list is worth watching. You know, he's got um, he's got sort of a, an explanation at the top that these are the films that continue to um, entertain him. Upon multiple watches, they're timeless. And um, anyway, number one, and um, you know, he's got a whole bunch of, you know, he, he explains how they're they're not really separated. The idea that one is so much better than the other um, is is kind of ridiculous. But uh, they're all great. They're all rewatchable. But be that as it may, he does have number one listed as Nicholas Ray's In a Lonely Place. And In a Lonely Place to me is an is an interesting type of film noir. It is such a smartly made film. It's so watchable. It's, it reminds me of Citizen Kane in a way. Um, the first time I watched Citizen Kane, I felt like Citizen Kane could have been and could still continue to be a gateway film. One of those films that people who aren't fans of classic cinema can watch Citizen Kane and realize, oh, classic cinema can be great. And I, a couple of years ago, I don't know who it was, it was a blue check, but it was somebody on Twitter who was a blue check, um, said he was going to post something controversial but brave or something like that, um, or post a controversial opinion. And uh, the opinion he posted was that uh, nobody really likes old movies. That's what he called them, old movies. He said uh, they just pretend to. And I know what he's saying, because there are people who just pretend to do stuff. You know, they... Um, I, I mean, there's some art house films that I, I've seen that I'm thinking, there's no way anybody really enjoyed this. How could you enjoy it? There's, it's, it's nonsense. It's, it's all just, you know, pretension. And I could be wrong. People could really enjoy it, but I think they've told themselves they enjoy it, and that's why they enjoy it. Um, so I sort of understand what, he, what he's getting at, but I had to heartily disagree on the classic cinema. And I think probably the reason he would say something like that is that he's never never seen a movie like In a Lonely Place or uh, Citizen Kane or maybe Casablanca or maybe don't go back that far. Maybe start with a, um, a highly entertaining, you know, not quite as, as old, quote-unquote, film um, and, and watch something with Jack Lemmon. He made so many good, so many good movies, uh, so many just highly entertaining movies, and they're not... Yeah, they're not from the 30s and 40s. You know, maybe they're from the, you know, from the 50s and 60s. Um, I don't know exactly when Jack Lemmon started making movies. Uh, he, you know, he made The Apartment and uh, um, 
just just a whole bunch of movies, just a whole bunch of highly entertaining movies. Jack Lemmon was for a while my go-to for for anything. If I wanted to watch something classic, I was like, let me find a let me find a Jack Lemmon movie that I that I haven't haven't seen yet because it's guaranteed to be it's guaranteed to be highly entertaining. And to me, Citizen Kane is the one that I usually think of, where I say, well, look, if you watch this movie, it doesn't it's not going to feel like it's old. It's not going to feel stale to you. You're going to be able to get into it. Um, and, uh, and it's going to entertain you. And with film noir, In a Lonely Place is one of those films that I think of. I think that it's, it's so easily accessible. It's easy to follow. Sometimes film noir gets, gets in its way. Um, sometimes it's a little convoluted. You can't, you can't necessarily, you feel like you have to watch it again to figure out what, what happened. And so In a Lonely Place starts out um, you're introduced immediately to um, Humphrey Bogart's character, uh, Dixon Steele. Everybody calls him Dix. And you can tell right away he's, he starts out in a bar and this guy's a hothead. You know, he, uh, he seems like a nice guy. He uh, sits down and there's a washed up older actor there who nobody wants to sit by. And he, he says, no, let's sit by him. And, uh, of course, the old actor is a wino. He's, he's just an alcoholic. And... Uh, and, and Dixon seems like a nice guy because he, he, wants, to, he wants to sit by the older, the older actor. Uh, but he also orders him a drink every time. So he's also sort of feeding the guy's addiction. Um, which, hey, you know, you, you're, the, the, the brilliance of In a Lonely Place is the, that you start out experiencing, you sort of experience a relationship with Dixon Steele. Um, it, it, it sort of takes you through the the process of what it would be like to get to know him you know at the very beginning he is just a he's just a, seems like a very nice guy he's going to stand up for for what he believes in but he's he's very nice to talk to but there's also some warning signs he uh he's ordering an uh he's ordering a drink for an alcoholic who's who's um sitting at the bar drowning his sorrows and I think the actual very first scene, the very first scene, is when um, he's driving down the, he's driving uh, in Hollywood, and somebody, um, a girl, talks to him and says, "Hey," because she recognizes him, and then, um, and then the husband who she's with doesn't like it, and uh, he says, "Well, pull over and let's uh, let's fight now," and, and Steele doesn't even, he doesn't even bother to pull over. He goes, "Why, why pull over? What's wrong with this?" And he just opens the door right there on the road, gets out and getting ready to fight. So the other guy takes off. So you see that he's got this sort of just, I mean, he's ready to fight at any point. Even, that scene, even the opening scene uh, after he arrives at the bar, he's, there's somebody there who's talking trash about the older actor and, and not being polite. And, uh, and so Dixon starts a fight. He throws him across the room. He knocks another guy over. And somebody makes a comment about, about well, there goes Dix again. You know, so it's just they just expect that this guy is is, uh, is spoiling for a fight at any point. He's not he's he's not hesitant at all to to engage physically. And I was a screenwriter and they have arguments about um, what's good screenwriting and what's uh, he accuses somebody else of being a popcorn salesman. And, uh, you know, he talks about how what he writes is supposed to be good. Um, everybody writes something bad every once in a while, but he's supposed to write something good. So the other guy says, well, you know, I've, he's had a bunch of hits over and over again. And he says, yeah, because you've been repackaging the same story for 20 years. You're a popcorn salesman. And the other guy says, well, we're, we're both popcorn salesmen. I just don't fight it. And so that's sort of something you, you can relate with. It's kind of like, is it good art or is it art that sells? And uh, you kind of have to make that choice. 
So um, he's supposed to read a book that night, and uh, somebody somebody asks him to read this book, and he's supposed to, I think, write a uh, write a script about the book. And so he doesn't feel like reading. He's tired. He's been drinking, and he asks um, a girl to go with him, um, Mildred Atkinson, the hat check girl, um, to go to his apartment and tell him the plot of the of the story that he might uh, he might be assigned. And so she uh, she does. Um, she she comes to his house and she tells him what it's all about, and so then he pays her, uh, sends her sends her um, to the taxi stand, and um, and so then you come to find out that uh, yeah, she was murdered after he left, and so that's what that's the plot of the entire movie, that uh, that they're trying to figure out well is he a suspect, um, has he did he murder her, um, you know he's obviously a violent person, um, Dick's never he, he never takes the accusation seriously almost at all um, a couple times he gets mad about it but for the most part he's he's sort of sarcastic and laid back about it like no of course i didn't do that but he doesn't have any sort of he doesn't seem upset that's one of the things that the uh, law enforcement are like well what's the deal he's you don't even you know we tell you this this lady was murdered you don't you're not even worried about it he says something like well i can be guilty of not having emotions but uh does that mean i murdered her or something like that and one thing that's very fascinating to me is that Dixon Steele does not answer anyone's questions throughout the entire movie. I mean, just all throughout this film, people ask him questions and he doesn't answer them. He doesn't go out of his way to try to deny um, the, um, you know, the accusations against him. Uh, he, he scoffs at it a little bit, um, and there are times where he'll deny it. Like at one point, he goes over to, um, to, to one of the cops' houses um, and so he's eating dinner with them, and ostensibly they're there to eat to eat and hang out. But uh, but actually, you know, uh, the cop who believes in Dixon doesn't want to. He doesn't want to, but he's he's supposed to try to sort of get get dirt on Dixon, on Dix. And so um, there's a scene where Dix uh, he 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 starts acting like a, a film director, and they put a shadow, a dark shadow, on his face, and he. He, he has the, the detective and his wife sit there in chairs pretending like they're in a car. And he's directing them, explaining how this uh, woman could have been murdered from a car. And he's telling him, okay, now left hand on the wheel. All right, now drive. Now put your right arm around her neck. Now squeeze. And, all right, squeeze tighter. It feels great to squeeze tighter. And he's just, he's directing it like he's directing a scene in a movie. And he's got this wild, crazy look on his face. And his face is in shadow with, with the light on his forehead. And, and uh, it's just, uh, it's very creepy. And the scene makes him seem like a, like a maniac. And it seemed like, well, how, how could you describe this, this, this way that this murder would have taken place? Um, what's going on here? And so um, it's, the entire movie is meant to, even though you saw him send her away, to, to get you to sort of wonder, okay, but what is the deal? You know, why didn't he care? And, you know, I, I, don't, I don't feel like when I watched it, um, I, I ever really thought, um, I, I'm trying to think about the first time I watched it, I don't believe that I ever really thought he was a, a murderer because, um, well, he just, it, it, you know, you, you watch at the beginning and he seems so polite and nice and he sent her away and you watch her leave. And, um, and so uh, it didn't seem like it, but it was just this character study and how can this person be so full of rage and anger and how can he, you know, gets, you know, he's a writer, right? So he's supposed to be creative. So how is he, you know, just, uh, why would he build that scene with the police, you know, and, and with, with her, with his wife there, 
um, showing how it could have happened to choke, choke somebody. And so, uh, I mentioned earlier that he doesn't deny it. One of the times that he does deny it is they said, uh, is he says, no, don't worry. My, the artist in me wouldn't, wouldn't allow me to throw a beautiful woman out of a car like that. You know, just being glib about it, not even, not even really addressing the accusations, just, just very, um, I mean, just almost like a joke, you know? So then they call in this, uh, this, this lady, um, uh, and, uh, uh, Laurel and, uh, and she is played by, um, Gloria Graham. And if you, if you don't know Gloria Graham, she's been around, uh, uh, she's around the film noir circles. You see her, um, here and there, but you probably, uh, would recognize her first and foremost as the, the lady from It's a Wonderful Life. Um, the, the pretty one that everyone's looking at all the time, you know, uh, the, the scene on the street where, uh, <laughs> where uh, I think George Bailey says, uh, hey, that's some dress. And uh, she goes, this old thing? Uh, I only wear this when I don't care how I look. And then, uh, <laughs> you know, Bert and Ernie, the cop and the, uh, and, and the, and the taxi driver are staring <laughs> as she walks by and everything. And then later on, George, George Bailey, uh, he says, uh, we'll, we'll take off all our shoes and we'll, we'll go up into the mountains. And, uh, we'll, you know, <laughs> and she says, take my, take my shoes off. Are you crazy? Uh, whatever. And, you know, she kind of embarrasses him. And, uh, he says, ah, oh, forget the whole thing. And everybody's laughing at him. Anyway, that's Gloria Graham. That's, that's Gloria Graham. And so she is, uh, she's in this movie. Um, and so she's sort of a witness, uh, having seen, uh, him after she left. And ironically enough, even though she's a witness, uh, and they meet through the police, um, she begins to doubt whether she's even sh sure that he didn't commit the murder because of the way he acts. And so, uh, they, they fall in love and they start having this relationship and, uh, he's, he's, uh, encouraged to write because of, uh, because of her influence in his life. And so he's typing away and there's some funny scenes where he's, you know, he's writing, uh, he's, he's writing by hand and trying to get the scene written and he doesn't even realize who's in the room and the answers he gives have nothing to do with the questions. And it's just highly entertaining. And yet as they begin to pro progress in their relationship, there's just things that, that happen. There's just little red flags, you know, you get in this relationship and all oh, this person seems so nice and sincere at first, but now uh, there are these, these red flags and, uh, you know, he's flying off the handle. And so it all comes to a head one night. Um, they're at the beach and, uh, she had, uh, met with the police. And so, um, uh, somebody, another lady, actually the, the lady that, that, uh, was the, the wife of the policeman, I can't remember her name. And so they were, she mentions at some point, um, that, uh, she lets it slip that, um, at some point in, in recently, um, that Laurel had, had spoken with the, the investigative team or something like that. And so Dixon had over and over again been saying things like, well, I didn't know about this. What you went to the doctor. I didn't know about this. Just showing these signs of being just overbearing and controlling. And then he says, well, wait a minute, when did you, and they're having a great time at the beach, you know? So well, when did that happen? Why didn't anybody tell me? And so, uh, he, 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 he gets angry and she said, well, we didn't want to upset you. You know, well, you're lying. There's another reason. And so this paranoid side of him just comes out and, uh, that's the night where he, um, so he storms off and he's going to leave her at the beach basically. And, um, he, you know, just at the last second while he's, you know, ripping through the parking lot with the car in reverse, she jumps in the passenger seat and then they go for a drive. So he's driving 80, 80 miles an hour down the road and, um, and, and just people are honking. He's cutting people off and it's being dangerous. So then, uh, at the end, obviously his fault, he, uh, 
he has a near wreck. He, he you know, sort of sideswipes another car. And they pull to a stop, and this guy gets out, and of course he's he's understandably upset. He runs up and he says, "Hey, you know," and uh, you know, you I forget what he calls him, uh, something about a squirrel or something. And he says, uh, "Calm down, calm down." You know, Dick's at first just very quickly says, "Hey, take it easy, take it easy." And the guy says, "Take it easy. I just got a brand new car, uh, brand new paint, uh, brand brand new paint job." And so uh, he says, "You know what, I oughta." And at the at the the moment he says, "I oughta," the moment any sort of possibility for a fight presents its head Dix immediately opens his door shoves the guy back and then starts fighting him he starts beating him and he beats him down to a to a pulp on the ground and then finds a big rock and holds it up over his head like he was about to smash his head with it and uh and only because laurel yelled him and said stop you know she's yelling stop you know and then when he's got the rock above the head above the guy's head he says she says you'll kill him and he sort of gains his senses at that moment and puts the rock down and doesn't kill him but then he gets in the car and he's got this super calm, like, oh, he just deserved it. Well, you know, you saw what you heard what he said to me. He goes from this off the handle, like just incredible over the top anger to just oh, super calm, super calm, you know, no, no, um, no, no, no big deal. He just had it coming because of what he said. You heard what he said. And so, um, so she's scared. And, uh, and then of course the next morning, um, he, they just, they're all in love again. You know, he's super calm and the nice, the nice him has come out again and that's the way he does everything. So he, it, he just goes from these, you know, crazy over the top to just super calm in those moments. And she, and she mentions it. She just, she talks about it with somebody else saying, you know, he doesn't act normal. He doesn't act like normal people. And so he sort of, um, he sort of presses her to, to get married. And she says, well, you know, I, I don't, why do we have to rush anything? Because we don't have to rush anything. We don't have to leave for the honeymoon until tomorrow. Needy goes to explain. You say yes now. I'll go get the ring. We'll have a celebration tonight. And then we'll go, uh, we'll, we'll leave by tomorrow. And she's afraid. She'll see, so she says yes. And uh, her plan was to leave. She wanted, she's waiting on uh, the travel agent to call her back and let her know that she has a flight out to New York. And, um, and so while she's packing up to get ready to leave, he comes back and, um, and he says, no, I just realized uh, that I don't have your ring size, so you have to come with me. So she's like, well, no, 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 no. And so he eventually gets her to hang out with her, uh, to hang out with him that entire day. So they go get rings and they're stuck at the party where they're hanging out. And, uh, and, and she's, not, she's not feeling happy about it. She wants to leave because she said yes, but she's afraid. At this point, she's starting to think he might actually be the murderer. And so um, at the party, um, everything's going well uh, other than the fact that she's just sort of trapped there until something happens and he flies off the handle. He smacks his own agent in the face, breaks his glasses, you know, just turns into a nut again. And then, of course, right after that, he goes to apologize. You know, hey, I, I well, he doesn't ever actually apologize. He just says, uh, I'll have to get you another this or did I hurt you? You know, and, and I shouldn't have hit you. You know, he'll say things like I shouldn't have done it, but he doesn't ever apologize. He doesn't ever really seem to seek help or for, for what he's going through. So at this point, she's, uh, she is fully convinced that she's got to go. So, uh, she leaves by the time he comes back out of the bathroom after, uh, after flying off the handle, she leaves and she goes back to her house. When he gets there, the door's locked and, uh, he's threatening her to let her in, which would be terrifying. I, I, I know. Um, and, uh, eventually she lets him in and, uh, she says, well, I was just tired. And then he sees that she's not wearing the ring and he says, no, go get the ring and put it on. Um, and then, um, her room is locked and he goes, why is it locked? Go get the ring, put it on. 
So when she runs in the other room, she has this note that she would have left as a, as a John, you know, uh, a dear John type of thing, you know, um, or something. Uh, I mean, it doesn't show us what's in the letter, but she, she tears it and gets rid of it. And then, um, um, he, while he's, he's angry that she wasn't wearing it, um, we see that the police have, uh, found the actual murderer. So he's been cleared of the murder and the, um, and then the um, phone rings, and so we're we're hoping that it's them calling to let them know that he's been he's been off. You know, he, he's no longer a suspect, but it isn't. When he picks up the phone, it's apparently the travel agent calling back, and so when he he says, "I'll deliver the message to her." So when he finds out she actually was leaving him, she wasn't packing to go on their honeymoon, uh, which he had recently accused her of. Are, are you leaving? To, are you leaving? Are you leaving me, or are you packing for the honeymoon? She says, "No, I'm packing for the honeymoon." Well, and then it's confirmed. No, she was waiting to get out, and when that call, when they that called back, so he he's so he's so angry about it. He takes her in the other room, and he's like choking her, um, just being psycho, and then um, and then I will leave it right there. That's uh, that's where I will. Um, I will pause um, and ask you to, uh, if you haven't seen the end, don't ruin it for yourself. Um, watch the movie, okay? So there's there's where I will I will put our our spoiler marking for you. All right. So um, definitely, if you don't want to know how everything ends up, then you know take some time and watch the movie. You'll enjoy it. It's worth watching. It's worth rewatching. And okay, enough sufficient time has passed now that you could have pressed pause if you didn't want to hear the end. So he's choking her in the other room and the phone rings again. And this time um, he, he stops himself, again, sort of catching himself short of killing somebody and, uh, and goes and answers the phone. And when he does, this time it's the police. And uh, there was one particular um, uh, police uh, personnel. I don't know if he was a chief, detective, whatever. And he says... Uh, you've been cleared and I want to apologize to you and the lady, could you please put her on the phone? So he just calmly walks over, hands her the phone and tells her they want to apologize to you. And so he says, I'm sorry for what I put you guys through, uh, but you're, you guys, uh, you don't have to stress anymore. He wasn't the murderer. And she says something like, well, that would have been good news yesterday, but, uh, but today it means nothing. And because obviously it doesn't make a difference at this point, um, he is, he's crazy and she knows it and he's going to be overbearing and overpowering and he's not going to let her live her life. And she knows that. And so she, uh, so he just sort of walks away and I've got this little saying that he wanted to put into the script. Um, and she mentions that saying, what is, uh, what does it say? She says something like he, I lived a few weeks while he loved me. You know, there's a saying, uh, um, I was born when she kissed me. I died when she left me. Um, and I uh, lived a few weeks when she loved me, something like that. And so he mentions it a couple of times that he wants to work it into the script because it's poetic. Well, she mentions the middle part portion while he's leaving, walking out of the courtyard, and she says, goodbye, Dix. And that's, that's the way it ends up. Now, what is so great about this film that Eddie Muller would put it as his number one? Well, uh, first off, it's, it's incredibly watchable. You know, I don't. I don't mean it lightly at all. Uh, in in comparing the film to Citizen Kane, I, I that was a transformative movie in my lifetime. When I first watched Citizen Kane, I would not have considered myself any sort of aficionado on classic cinema. I probably didn't watch much of it. I, at one time or another, probably just felt that uh, Hitchcock movies were good and Jimmy Stewart movies were good, but I wasn't into other classic cinema. And when I watched Citizen Kane, I realized there's a whole uh, 
uh, th- th- there are, there's a whole set of films out there of different styles and different and different um, types than what I had watched, and I didn't need to just you know only pay attention to the to the people that I recognized, you know Hitchcock and, uh, and and Jimmy Stewart and Cary Grant, and that sort of opened me up to this idea that okay, classic cinema really really can be very good. It can be very watchable and compulsively watchable, and that's what this this movie is. Um, it, it is it's compulsively watchable. It is not hard to follow. There's just nothing. You know, sometimes film noir kind of buckles under its own plotting, and uh, you know, a lot of times it's uh, much like what uh, what Dix does for a living. It is translating from 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 crime novels and trying to make it fit for the screen. And sometimes you get lost in it. I mean, so even the great ones, sometimes you you know you get lost in it. And in this case, you just don't. There, there's no way to really get lost in this film. It is straightforward. It is all just. Uh, pure, you know, internal darkness in, in Humphrey Bogart's character, and uh, it's just so, so well done. Now, the the movie was directed by Nicholas Ray, um, a well-known, uh, well-known director in film noir, and uh, he also did They Live by Night um, and others, but uh, it was actually um, adopt, uh, adapted from uh, from the book by Dorothy B. Hughes. Now, in her novel, uh, there is, uh, her novel's quite different, uh, quite different. And, uh, I believe, uh, some of the, some of the things that they mentioned in the, in the book, I haven't read the novel. I have read Dorothy B. Hughes, but I haven't read, um, that's that book. Um, and I think maybe someday I will, but, uh, but I don't know. And, you know, they talk about the character of Dix in the movie is actually, is actually a killer, a serial killer. Um, and he, uh, follows women around and, and it's, it's a very different feel. This thing was, was adapted for the, for the movies and it is just very digestible and very, very watchable. Um, and so I think it was very well done. Um, I, I, I've heard people say that, you know, they think this is Bogart's finest role. It's very possible. It's very possible. You know, um, in the uh, Blu-ray, I should discuss before I end here. In in this Blu-ray, the one that I watched was the Criterion Collection. Uh, there is a Criterion version of in, in the Lonely Place, and it's worth it's worth spending twenty five bucks or twenty bucks or whatever on Amazon to pick up because you get all these special features. I mean, I've I've said it every time I've reviewed a Criterion film. They're they're worth it. The, the reason they're pricey is because they are for cinema lovers. They're for film lovers, and they are worth it. So uh, the the packaging on this on this Criterion Blu-ray looks fantastic. Um, here here's what it has listed under the Blu-ray special edition features. It says new 2K digital restoration with uncompressed monaural um, soundtrack. New audio commentary featuring scholar Dana Polin. I'm a Stranger Here Myself, a 1975 documentary about director Nicholas Ray, slightly condensed for this release. A new interview with biographer Vincent Curcio. I think I'm saying that name right, but I could be wrong. About actor Gloria Graham. A piece from 2002 featuring filmmaker Curtis Hansen. Radio adaptation from 1948 of the original Dorothy B. Hughes novel. I feel like I may have to watch that one. Uh, broadcast on the program Suspense. It also has the theatrical trailer plus an essay by critic Imogen Sarah Smith. And uh, I did look through that. Um, I watched one of the uh, one of the one of the uh, which one did I watch? I'm a stranger here myself. No, that's the Nicholas Ray one. I didn't watch that one. Um, I watched one of the other special features. It was about 20 minutes long, where they went through and talked. Um, I think that's the one with Curtis Hansen, the one I watched. And he talks about the uh, the enduring legacy of In a Lonely Place and what makes it so so watchable. And so, if you pick up the Blu-ray, check that one out. 
and uh, and I did read through the essay by Imogen Sarah Smith, and it's really good. You know, it, it, it just it sort of focuses in on why is this more heartbreaking? Why is this more tragic than um, than regular film noir? Because they often end badly. But she makes the point to mention that um, you know film noir doesn't have a positive, happy ending, a redemptive ending. A lot of times, um, a lot of times, you know, the, the hero dies, or they get caught, or they go to jail, or something worse. But they don't usually, and this is her words, she said, they don't usually uh, tear your heart out. This one does. The way it ends is more tragic, and because of the way it's filmed and the way it's built up, it is actually more tragic. It makes you feel it more, and, um, and, and you do get the aspect that you get the feeling that he's never going to not be alone. Um, he's, he's never going to get the help he needs. He's never going to be able to change at this point in his life. I mean, he's... When the film came out, he was 24 years, well, I guess at all times, he's 24 years older than Gloria Graham, and he had a perfect opportunity to get with the woman he loves, but couldn't control his own uh, fury, his own anger, and the responses that he, uh, that he had to things. And so, um, so it, is a very, it is a very lonely and a very somber ending to the film, and it's, 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 I don't want to say it's satisfying, but it is true. It is, it is true to itself. Um, it doesn't give you, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't tie it all up in some kind of bow that makes everything happy. Um, but, uh, but for me, when Gloria Graham gets the information at the end that, uh, hey, we're sorry, you know, uh, you, you don't have to, you, you guys don't have to stress anymore. And she tells the policeman, you know, that that information would have been great yesterday, but today it doesn't matter. Honestly, I find that that is great for her. In my, in, in my uh, very simple um, uh, critique of the film, had she gotten that news yesterday, she would have gone through and married a, a, a person who's a madman, <laughs> pretty much. Uh, he's, he, we know people like him. We've seen people like him, and we've sometimes been people like him. We do the best we can, and we try to be the best we can, and yet there were times when we were at our lowest, and uh, something has to change for that to, for that to go away. But he's, he's you know, there's something, there's something dark, and emotion, you know, the emotion is real. And uh, just a, just a very very excellent excellent film. Uh, I wouldn't say it's my favorite. Um, you know, I wouldn't say it's my number one film noir. Usually, when I think of that, I think of Double Indemnity um, or uh, Sweet Smell of Success or some others along those veins. Uh, you know, I'm not exactly sure. But when people ask me what's your favorite film noir, those usually are the two that come to mind. And I feel like maybe in the near future, I'm going to have to uh, do some episodes about about those. But uh, but in the lonely place, in a lonely place, an excellent film. Um, you got the Dorothy B. Hughes. Um, source material, and then you've got Nicholas Ray, and you've got, I mean, you got Humphrey Bogart. So um, you've got all everything there, um, everything in, in, in line for for an excellent and timeless timeless film, and it is. And so uh, check it out if you haven't. I mean, just to say you did, <laughs> but you won't you won't waste your time. You, you'll enjoy it. So I, I just want to appreciate you guys for listening. I am going to sign off for now. This is a little bit longer of an episode. I hope I haven't gone on and on too much about this, but it's really a great film, and there's really a lot to, to, to appreciate and uh, enjoy here. And so uh, when you watch the film, as always, please turn your phone off. Mm-hmm.